Welcome to the Grace South Bay Church Podcast. I'm Matt Cabot, your host and elder at Grace South Bay. Each week we have a Q&A conversation with our pastors about their sermons. We talk theology and we get into the Bible. And we discuss practical ways to live out our faith as Christians in the Silicon Valley and beyond. Today we continue our conversation on a sermon series from the book of Exodus. In a sermon titled, People and Property, Pastor Bob discusses how to use property to build up people and not the other way around. We'll look at our possessions and how to seek God's kingdom first. All that and more is on the table today as we dive into Exodus chapter 22. Glad you're with us. Let's dig in. So, Bob, let's let's start with some good news. I think this is good news. Okay. Uh, happy, happy July 1st. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Halfway through 2020. Yes. We who, only knows, have... who knows what else it has for us, right? <laughs> yeah, we have six decades left in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> six months. Yeah, six decades, right? Yeah, who oh, knows? Oh, my goodness. Anyway, well, that's that's good. Well, let's, let's get into this. Um, your sermon is People and Property, and let's, let's start with this question. Um, does property matter to God? And is there a certain kind of property that's more valuable in God's eyes? Well, yeah, I mean, I would definitely say property matters to God. Um, particularly, like I said, it, it, it makes the Ten Commandments in terms of not stealing. And clearly there are uh, lots of different uh, property protections written into the Old Testament. And one of the points that I was making is that <clears throat> typically what the kind of property that's being talked about as examples are... Uh, property that is a productive asset in some sense, something that enables humans to um, flourish and, and not just simply consume in a moment, um, mm. but use to actually um, live and, and grow uh, themselves, their families, um, their households uh, for years to come. So that's why I talked about this difference between, um, or, and this is the theory behind the difference mm-hmm. between um, restoring what was stolen, particularly an ox or a sheep, versus losing, completely losing what was stolen because of the investment that's put into it and the fact that it is a productive asset. And what we, you know, going back into Genesis 1 and 2, what we see is that, you know, God wants humans to flourish and thrive and to fill the earth and subdue it. And the point is, is that, that take, that's going to take stuff. It's hmm. going to take animals. It's going to take tools. Uh, it, it will take machines. It's going to take technology. Um, we, we need more than just simply our bodies to do what God has called us to do. And so, uh, of course, that stuff is going to matter to God because we matter to God. And, and this is the stuff that helps us do what God has called us to do. And we call that stuff property. Mm-hmm. So, so it does matter to God, but you said that God puts people over property. How so? Well, you know, I, I was using—one one way to make that argument was to be uh, using these examples of God's laws versus surrounding laws of the nations, and, mm-hmm. you know, just very uh, easily just to point out how um, you could not kill uh, to protect your property uh, in, mm-hmm. in verses 2 and 3 of chapter 22, where, you know, if, if someone's breaking in in the daytime, you cannot kill them for doing mm-hmm. that. 
Um, whereas in other laws, you absolutely could. You know, you someone gets on your property, someone's trying to take your stuff, you kill them. Or uh, if the thief is caught and they can't restore what was taken, um, they're sold into slavery in order to pay off their debt. They are not simply killed, which is um, what they what, what happened in Hammurabi's code. I mean. I don't. I, I cut this out of the sermon, but by the late 1700s in England, there were 220 laws, 220 crimes that called for the death penalty. Hmm. Many of those were different kinds of thefts for as little as 12 pence of something, one-fifth of a, of a skilled worker's weekly wage, right? So, I mean, stealing wow. just a little bit could lead to the death penalty. Now, that, that slowly eased up throughout the 1800s. But there were all kinds of laws on the books that put property over people, whether in the ancient Middle East or in the more modern, enlightened era. And we see God not doing that here. All right, so we've established that God God does care about property. He says that people are more important than property. So let me give you a hypothetical. Okay. Is it okay if I steal a car from a rich guy to feed the hungry and house the homeless? All things being equal, no, that's not okay, right? So we're, if we're talking about stealing, that's theft. That's the, mm-hmm. the, the Eighth Commandment. Um, you know, what, what, I, what I said uh, in the sermon was that, you know, you, you can't take what God has given uh, to someone else. You can't take that for yourself or for someone else. Um, and, this, and, and, and stealing is really a, an act of violence, even though it's not necessarily done uh, with a weapon, uh, or a lethal weapon, it is still a, a violent act to come in and to take what it, right now is in someone else's possession is a violent act in and of itself. And, and God mm-hmm. isn't interested in us using violence uh, to improve people's lives. He is interested in us using violence in order to protect people from violence. So, so mm-hmm. violence is, is necessary, unfortunately, sometimes, but we don't um, take from others uh, to help others. Now, that doesn't mm-hmm. mean we're not concerned about feeding the hungry and housing the homeless. And this is where we, you know, recognize God's provision and and the way that He works through us and through His people. That that actually we shouldn't have to steal from others uh, in order to help others. But yeah, I mean, it, it you know the, the the Robin Hood thing mm-hmm. doesn't work. Yeah. Um, and that's I, I think that that's pretty uh, clear from Scripture. Okay, so in this passage, um, it also talks about about women and marriage, and mm-hmm. and and God makes an unprecedented provision for women and marriage in the ancient world. What was that? Well, you know, it, it's just this what we I guess should assume is probably a fairly common occurrence. It is now. It it, it was a hundred years ago. It probably was three thousand years ago. You know, a, a a young man and young woman get together and and have sex and out of marriage and. Um, you know, neither one are necessarily committed to anyone else. Um, but the problem is, is in that day, uh, that's going to dramatically uh, limit the the girls. We're going to call her a girl because we're talking mm-hmm. about an early early to late teenager. Mm-hmm. Uh, really limits her marriage prospects going forward, and that's also then a property issue because the way that it worked is that you know a family would give a bride price. Um, to the bride's family, which would then follow her as a dowry into her marriage, and it protects her 
uh, gives her some uh, financial leverage to be protect to be treated well by her husband and her husband's family because even though Genesis 2 says a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, generally it was the woman who left and was united to her husband and her husband's family. So <laughs> she needed some protection. What this does is it says, this law says that, well, if the man has sex with the woman, young woman, then he has to pay the bride price to her family, and they might not get married anyway. If the family, if the father doesn't mm-hmm. like the guy, she doesn't have to get married to him. But now they have the bride price. Now she has a dowry, so she can still have a chance of being married to uh, you know, a good family, someone from a good family. So in that sense, it, it really protects this young woman even if um, she's made a mistake. So that that still continues in places around the world today, but there's a more of a, of a there's a broader principle here though too, um, and, th- and I think you said this in your sermon. If a man and a woman decide to have sex outside of marriage, you said that the man is more responsible than the woman. Uh, why is that? <laughs> well, <laughs> just... this is this is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, first of all, what I would so I'm I'm making I'm drawing that conclusion from mm. that passage. Now, the question of why, you know, explain that, Bob, right. is um, that's a really challenging thing, and actually, it's something that is a, is one of the primary tasks of um, churches like ours, the, our tradition right now, mm-hmm. uh, Reformed Evangelical uh, tradition, is, is that we have to come up with a better articulation of the, the- theology of gender, um, because mm-hmm. it, it, it's not what we have right now, if we have anything, isn't really answering the questions that we're asking. So this is a, this is a project that we're on, so I can take a stab at it, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm looking forward to, you know, 20 to 50 years from now having a much better, and maybe I won't be around, but having a much better way of, of describing this. But here's, some, here's, here's a way to take a shot at it. And okay. first of all, what I would say is this means everything else being equal, right? We're not talking about Potiphar's wife and Joseph, right? We're not right, talking about right. this a massive power differential. Um, we're talking peer to peer, right? Um, and this is a, you know a young man and a young woman, and again, neither are legally connected. That really changes mm-hmm. things if they're legally connected in various ways to to other people, but they're both essentially free, except part of their households. So why might, so what we see here is instead of God saying, well, you know, let's let's call it even, they both made a Mm -hmm. mistake and, you know, she loses her bride price and, you know, what happens to him? I don't know what happens to him. So therefore he has to pay the bride price. Maybe he gets married, maybe not. And it seems like the responsibility falls on him. That's what it, that's what this appears to be. So why would that why would that be the case? And so we have to kind of come up with some kind of thoughts and ideas here about uh, gender. If if mm-hmm. if this is more than simply for ancient Israel, and and I think it is because I think we can see some lines throughout Scripture. First of all, something that we can see is that there, there's just something biological and anatomical about this. I, mm-hmm. I don't want to get graphic, right? But but in the sex act, there is a giving and a receiving, and and something biological even has to happen for a man to have sex, right? For, for it to even be possible, uh, mm-hmm. a man has to go through a, a biological transformation. What are you talking right? about? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not talking. This that's as far as I'm going okay. there with that. That's good. But there, there, and it's something that might get more difficult as you get older. But um, what? But there's something 
uh, proactive and initiatory here about a man's role in sex. Mm-hmm. And and we see this hinted at and reflected in Scripture, particularly in Ephesians 5, talking about Jesus and the church, where Jesus is the husband and the church is the bride, and Jesus, the husband, has responsibility for the bride. He initiates, he loves, he comes to her, he finds her, he dies for her, and the church bride responds with love, reverence, and submission. He gives, the church receives, and gives herself back. He gives Mm -hmm. himself, she receives, and gives herself back. And that's, in one way, to talk about the, the, the primary description of sex. Now, Hmm. as we've talked about headship before, in in this kind of relationship, the man has leadership power. That's not a role. It's not a Mm -hmm. role to live up to. It is a fact. There's something about a relationship between a husband and wife where everything being equal, the marriage goes as the husband goes. Hmm. In in 1 Peter 3, we're told wives are uh, the weaker vessel. And that doesn't mean that they are weaker in terms of intellect or spirituality. It means that harsh words and threats and violence work much better against them than against men. Right? You can mm. do a lot more damage and harm to a woman uh, than to a man in, in mm. terms of the wor- you know, harsh words, threats, and violence. So men have a caring and protective role to play in relationship to women. Wrapping that all up. If a man and woman have entered into sexual sin, the first default assumption is the man has abused that role of protector and potential head. The man has been the proactive initiator. Hmm. Another way to think about it is, you know, who has the best ability to refuse sexual advances, right? Who has to do more to have sex? Hmm. The man does. And Hmm. maybe maybe it's as simple as that. The, The party who has the greatest chance to resist is the one most responsible for not resisting. And and what's interesting is that in our culture we have all, we have generally put the the task of resistance uh, we have given that to the woman when mm-hmm. it seems like in scripture that task of resistance ultimately is given more to the man. And again, anatomically, biologically, it seems like it is the man's job to restrain himself versus mm-hmm. the woman's job to restrain the man. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that's a great a great answer. Thanks, thanks, Bob. Thank you, Matt. Um, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> thanks for that easy one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, listen, I know you can handle these kind of things. Uh-huh. That's why I throw it your way. All right, here's another one. Um, maybe not quite as is. Uh, con- well, I don't know. Maybe it is controversial. The passage talks about sojourners. Um, who were they at the time, and who are they today? Sojourners were resident aliens, um, people who were um, permanently living in an area and making a life for themselves. And so, um, in, in particular, looking at the Old Testament, the sojourner par excellence is Abraham. Mm-hmm. Um, he was living amongst the Canaanites, and um, you know, and had to do business with them and, and deal with them and that kind of thing. But he owned no land, and he wasn't a part of any of their people groups. He was by himself with his own household. And so uh, uh, that's what a sojourner is, someone who doesn't quite belong, and particularly mm-hmm. who doesn't own land. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you don't own land, particularly in the ancient world, then, then you, know, you are vulnerable and at risk. Um, which is why you know that the promise of one day owning the land was so precious to mm-hmm. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants. So, who are they now? 
um, you could you could talk about well these are these are you know foreign born workers you know people mm. who it, it, living in a country um, who are not necessarily uh, you know a part of that country not mm. necessarily legally citizens um, and and not maybe necessarily uh, ethnically a part of it when we get to the United States it's challenging because in in one sense you know we are a nation of immigrants that that mm-hmm. people who have come from elsewhere or their forefathers have come from elsewhere so it does get challenging as we talk about you know who are they today and i don't think mm-hmm. you can make an easy uh one to one comparison um right. you can talk about uh immigrants um and you know, and 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 the fact that they they can be um, far more vulnerable, and and many of them are, and mm-hmm. and God calls people to care for the vulnerable. Um, of course, back in Israel's day, there were no actual borders, <laughs> and yeah. and there there were no immigration laws. Um, you know, so that so that's where it gets more complicated in terms of who is uh, technically allowed to be here legally and who is not. And, and all of those thorny questions, which, you know, we don't really have to get into right now, thankfully. But um, in general, I think it, it's – we can say that sojourners, aliens, slaves, wi- widows, orphans, these are the people that God is oftentimes talking about in terms of the, the class of people who are vulnerable, marginalized, seen as weaker. And I think we can, you know, find those people in our culture as well. And I think we can say that many immigrants do fit into that category. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, you know, we need to be thoughtful and considerate about what's going on with them and how our culture and what's going on locally, um, how we are um, contributing or not contributing to their well-being. Mm-hmm. So Bob, you're, you're a historian. Um, do you be. think that the idea of equal justice was born out of this passage? Well, <clears throat> you know, we do see um, other early law codes at least mm-hmm. giving lip service to equal justice and, and fairness, um, though we don't see any um, at, you know, at this time or even much later, say even into the Roman times, you don't see any as radical, as, as, as radically uh, equal as as these law codes here in the first five books of the Bible. But I think the thing that um, where we get maybe equal justice from, um, it, particularly you know the rights of the individual, everyone being equal before the law, the reason why these passages stand out for us is because God's prophets were so passionate about this when Israel failed to do it. Hmm. So there's lots of good good laws on the books. Everyone failed to do them, but Israel was held accountable for it, and, and we see this recorded by the prophets, and then we see Israel exiled from their land, right? They're brought back, and, and there's still problems, right? They, they continue to have problems with slaves and these kinds of things, and then we see Jesus come on the scene, and he's still talking about the same stuff, mm-hmm. the year of Jubilee, Right and and the 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 release from debts, um, and and so you know we see this as a pattern and a passion of God's, and it starts with the law and it goes through the prophets, and we see it culminate in Jesus, and so it's it all together we see the Judeo Christian witness uh, being the the seed for what we think of today as equal justice and and mm-hmm. individual rights and and being 
equal before the law. And it's passages like this that set that foundation so that the prophets hundreds of years later can point to Israel and say, you are ignoring what God said. You are ignoring the covenant that God mm. made with you. And look, our forefathers, they agreed to both the blessings and the curses if if we did not live up to this covenant. And we're in trouble. So shape up and repent. And they didn't repent. And so the rest is history. So does does the Bible um, treat the poor uh, as people who are poor always because they've been oppressed? No, no, definitely not. And um, in particular, we see warnings about this in Proverbs, right? In in terms of the the, the sluggard and and mm. the lazy, you know. And um, we might we might think that. Um, being hungry would actually keep you from being lazy and a sluggard, but that's not actually how it works oftentimes. And if you think about life back then, uh, in many cases, it's very subsistence living. You're, you know, you're sleeping on a hard, cold, dirt floor. You know, every day is kind of the same, at least seasonally. You know, you do this backbreaking labor. You eat a little bit, you know. Um, you have to deal with animals. Maybe it rains. Maybe it doesn't. You don't know. I mean, it's just a it can be a hard existence, mm-hmm. and that can actually lead people to kind of not care as much and, and not do as much. So um, poverty was certainly, um, just like it is today, can certainly come from, uh, you know, whether it's uh, an emotional problem, psychological problem, or just sort of a character flaw and defect. Mm-hmm. Um, it absolutely can happen, and that's one. That's where commentators think this idea of, you know, don't don't curse God or revile your rulers, um, was sort of a, a quick little check on the poor there in terms of like, don't don't just blame other people for mm-hmm. what's happening in your life. You know, you have to, you do need to take responsibility for yourself. And, you know, hard circumstances are not always, um, you know, someone else's problem. And in fact, mm-hmm. you know, what Jesus says is, when there's a problem, and he's talking about relationships, but it, generally it's a good rule of thumb. When there's a problem in your life, look at yourself first. <laughs> you know, yeah, like right, how right. how have I contributed mm-hmm. to this problem? So, um, this is one of the issues, Matt, with our our current debate, and and we've talked about it before. You know, whether some people think you know every issue comes down to the minute individual choices, right? It's it's all, you know, individual character and issues. And then other people say it's all systemic, right? It's all structural. And and thankfully, what I see in the Bible is it, it talks about both, that there can be structural, systemic issues, as well as, you know, individual character flaws across a, a large group of people. But it's mm-hmm. still an individual issue, right? And so... I can see both sides uh, when they're when they're diagnosing a problem. Both sides have part of the truth, mm-hmm. um, and, and even in our our current debate. And I think I think Scripture acknowledges both. You know, the problem with that is that that's way too uh, a, a much of a nuanced yeah, argument. Nuance, for this, right? This group, like, <laughs> I mean, the, the idea that there, there's both is no one likes that, right? No. They want to latch onto one set or another. Yep. So, um, so how do we use people? To build up property. Well, you know, in the in the Old Testament examples we were talking about, um, what what could happen is that you could you know have slaves and use them, you know, because you need human labor and not let them go free or, or not really make it possible for them to go free. 
Um, you know, every after six years, you're supposed to set them off with abundant provisions, and maybe you didn't have any abundant provisions to give them or weren't going to give that to them, and so, hey, maybe it's better just to remain my slave. Or you got someone in your debt somehow, and then you made them your slave. Or you bribed the local judges, and, you know, you, you whipped up a controversy and were able to take some fields from someone. Um, this unfortunately became common in Israel, and, and land um, became acquired, um, and, and people became acquired. And so it was, uh, it, it, it was, that, that was sort of a very direct form of using people to build up property, to build up your household, to build up your wealth. Um, I think it's much more difficult for us to find those examples on a personal level now. Um, mm -hmm. thank, in some sense, thankfully, right? They're, they're, we right. have a, a much more impersonal uh, society, and so it, it's harder to do that. Although, of course, you know, we, we do see human trafficking, right? We do see mm -hmm. um, businesses importing people. You know, holding on to their passports or visas or whatever else, and then literally enslaving them and, and keeping them there, even in the Bay Area, right? I mean, mm -hmm. businesses have been found doing this, so that that does that is happening on a personal level. I think for us, you know, people like you and me, it, it might be a little bit more theoretical in terms of mm -hmm. you know how do we treat people when money is on the line, hmm. right? Do, do we do we do we communicate that money is more important than people? That property is more important than people. You know, do 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 we get do we mistreat people or do we speak harshly to people because hmm. or when we f we think that there is wealth on the line? Um, or you know, when we think about how we pay people, um, you know, do we do we pay people for a job well done or do we pay as little as possible? Right, hmm. whatever the market can bear. Right, does. Right. Do, do, does our payment confer dignity and value, or does it confer uh, an impersonal, heartless transaction? Um, you know, I mean, I I didn't bring this up in my sermon. I was thinking about it, but like having done uh, uh, pool work, you know, for several summers in college, and thinking and being so thirsty sometimes, and yeah, I, you know, I'll just go and take water from the hose. But you know, thinking about wouldn't it be nice if the person offered me a, a soda, yeah. you know? And, uh, and, I, and I try to do that, right? When someone's over at our house working on stuff, hey, you need some water, you need a soda, you need to use the bathroom, that kind of thing, right? I mean, just like just treating people like persons, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and not like just sort of this impersonal service. And then, you know, there are some broader structural questions when we think about capitalism even. You know, mm -hmm. it's like this maximization of shareholder value above everything else. So, you know, do we do we need to care about employees? Do we need to care about customers? Do we need to care about the the local environments where these businesses are 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 situated? Now, I think you could argue that well, if you're, you know, if you really care about shareholder value, then you are going to care about those things. Maybe maybe not. So, mm -hmm. but these are these are questions that are worth asking. In terms of, you know, what are we trying to maximize? And the way that our system works is that, you know, we're typically trying to get the most for the lowest price, right? And that's, mm -hmm. and, and I'm not saying there's a better way of having an economic system, but that's what our system does. So we should be thoughtful about it. Well, let's, let's follow that line of, of inquiry for a minute. So clearly there's some rough edges in capitalism where we, you know, if we're treating, if we're using people to build up property, that's not good. But are yep. these laws advocating socialism? No, no, definitely not. And and I would love for us to I would love for our culture to actually um get 
the definition of socialism right, mm-hmm. where socialism means the state ownership of the means of production, and and it and it means central planning really. And so right. the social you know socialism happened in the Soviet Union, in communist Cuba, in communist China. Um, not too many places. So even you know Western Europe isn't socialist in that right. way. Um, now what 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 so this. This situation um, with ancient Israel is unique because God is very adamant that he is the owner of the land, and Israel will break up, divide up the land you know, by tribe and kin group and family, um, but it's not necessarily an equal distribution. Now, one thing that we see is that the year of Jubilee, after 49 years, um, the families will go back to their ancestral land. So in that sense, there's sort of a, a social reset uh, twice a century um, so that, you know, the, as there's going to be disparities as time goes on, those disparities are reduced again uh, as much as possible. Um, but that's, you know, nowhere are we supposed to try to deliberately uh, lay on top of another society, ancient Israel's society. And it, mm-hmm. and it isn't socialism in the sense of it's central planning. Of course, it's an, agra- it's, you know, it's an agrarian, pre-modern right. society. So it's not socialist. And, and we're not supposed to do that. Um, you know, what, what we are supposed to do is to recognize that there are people who are vulnerable among us, and we're not supposed to take advantage of them. And we're supposed to recognize that when people fall on hard times, we should be thoughtful about that. And, and see that partly is our responsibility. So absolutely not socialism. It, it's, it's advocating neither. I mean, so, you know, what, what I said was a, a worldview or, or a thought system that is based in inalienable property rights, ra- you know, whether the individual or the collective are sub-biblical. Mm-hmm. So I don't think the Bible uh, prescribes, uh, you know, hardcore capitalism or hardcore socialism. I think either one of those um, or, or a, ver- a lighter version of either of those is fine, you know, mm-hmm. if, if, if people, you know, have a say in it and, and they democratically agree to it. I think, right. I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have to work from there on, okay, now how do we, you know, how do we, um, like you said, uh, even out some of these rough edges on, on either end? Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't think, you know, the, you, you definitely have people who would claim that the, that this aspect or this part of the Bible is calling for some kind of, uh, socialism or collectivism, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Um, but nor is it calling for some kind of like libertarian, uh, hardcore capitalism. Mm-hmm. So um, we live in one of the richest places in the world here in the Silicon Valley. Um, because of that, is it more or less difficult to see the poor among us? You know, I, I think one of the issues there is to recognize that, you know, that w- who are the poor or, or what is poverty is kind of a moving target um, in the sense that, you know, poverty is now seen um, more of a, a sociological issue than sort of a, a an objective standard. You know, like what, who are the poor among us versus the poor in Israel 3,000 years ago? Um, and, and those standards of living are, uh, you know, infinitely different, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so the poor among us now are are getting, you know, have access to at least some basic health care, mm-hmm. um, you know, some basic uh, nutrition standards. 
um, you know, in general, uh, maybe outside of, of, of those who are homeless, in general, their lives are significantly better than the poor uh, of, of many other ages and even the, the poor of, of, of people around the world right now. Mm-hmm. But <clears throat> so what, what we see instead is that poverty is, is more of a people who live under the line of, of what is um, considered uh, decent and honorable for that society, and that's mm-hmm. what poverty is, you know. So, so whatever that line is, where people would be uh, terrified of falling below, um, you know, whatever takes away dignity, that's poverty. Um, now, yes, I, I think in general we do have a harder time seeing it, partly because of you know the way our modern economy works and and people who kind of work in the same. Uh, income level jobs and these kinds of things, they can congregate together and people who don't have to congregate elsewhere. Whereas Mm -hmm. a long, long, long time ago, the rich and poor middle class, they all had to congregate together basically. Mm -hmm. So we can, you know, by choice, we we self-segregate to people who are more like us. And uh, so we don't see that. And in addition to that, n- we act as human beings, we actually want to turn away from other human beings who aren't living in dignity. Like it's hard for us mm. to see. We don't yeah. want to see that. Like there's a visceral reaction. I don't want to look at that, right? Because it's painful to us, which th- in one sense, thank God it's painful to us. But it's so painful to us that we look away and we don't right. want to see it. And partly because we feel bad and we don't know what to do and we don't want to have to do something. <laughs> Yeah. So, so yeah. in many ways, it's hard to see, and we don't want to see. Well, let's talk about that—the to-do thing. Um, does this passage tell us how to alleviate poverty? Uh, poverty? No, no, it does not. Um, it tells us that we should be concerned about it. It mm-hmm. tells us that that we don't get to opt out and and assume it, it, that poverty is the poor's problem. Um, because God addresses the people with resources as they need to do, need to do something about it. Um, and so, no, it, it, what it, what it does is it says, it says, this is how, you know, ancient, this is how God wanted ancient Israel 3000 years ago to address poverty as it could happen in their culture, in their society. And so the best we can take from that is that, you know, we need to be concerned about this too, and particularly to recognize that the poor are vulnerable, and we need to make sure that particularly our justice system and economic system does not allow the exploitation of these people uh, for the sake of those who have means. And we would be silly to think that that's not possible right now and that that doesn't happen. So it, it has to be a concern of ours. It, it should... You know, like we have to, we have to, we have to look, you know, we can't look away. We have to look. So in your sermon, you said that it all belongs to God. And if that's true, how should that change the way we think about our possessions? Well, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is that I, I would hope that for the, for the Christian who really understands the doctrine of grace, Mm -hmm that they could recognize that everything good and praiseworthy in their lives is simply a gift from God. Hmm. That, that, you know, every good gift comes from above, right, James says? And so whatever we have um, is from God. And so that means we can't take credit for what we have. And, and what I mean by taking credit, it's like boasting, right? I mean, let him who boasts boast in the Lord, not in what he has, not in what he's done, not in his 
possessions. It means the way that we compare with others. I have something because I've worked harder for it or I've Mm -hmm. been smarter with it or I've taken better risks. And it's like, look, we see in Scripture that on the day of judgment, we will receive credit from the one who gives credit. We will receive credit from God for the things that we've done, okay? Leave it in God's hands. But it's not our job right now to say, well, I've done this, and therefore I'm entitled to more than you are, right? Mm. We don't get to take credit versus other people. Versus other people, we have been given something by God. Our intellect, our labor, our ability to labor, whatever mm-hmm. it might be, our parents. I mean, think about all the different things that contribute uh, to us being able to have what we have, right? And, and how little of that do we have control over, right? Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. therefore, we can't look at our stuff, our property, our status, whatever, as things that, you know, we earned and are simply ours because we've manufactured them ourselves and we are entitled to them. We, we can't do that. It's, these things are not ours by right or anything else. And therefore, if we recognize that these things are a gift from God, then these possessions are really loans, right? They're on mm-hmm. loan from God, and, and we can't uh, hoard them and hold on to them um, like these are things that, that we've generated ourselves and that because other people didn't work for them, they're not entitled to them. We, we right. can't think about it like that. Yeah. How does having Jesus help us hold everything more loosely? Well, you know, I, the, way that I, the way that I was trying to say it in the sermon is that what, what having Jesus does actually is it helps us face the fact that everything we have is already incredibly loose. <laughs> yeah. So what, what happens yeah. is because we see um, how frail life is and, and, and how uncertain and insecure things are, we end up holding so tightly onto yeah. money um, and the things money has afforded us or our children, right? I mean, you know, wh- why are we helicopter parents? Be- you know, because we know mm. our, something could happen to our kids. Right. And right. so what what having Jesus does, I mean, I think we'll get into generosity in a second, but what mm-hmm. what having Jesus does is it enables us to recognize, okay, right, I, I, can, I can breathe right. because I have everything in him, right? He is the Alpha and Omega, the ruler of all, all things are summed up in him. If we have him, we have all things. Hmm. And so therefore, I can truly see everything else in my life as a gift given in and through him as a token pointing me to him, right? Mm -hmm. So therefore, I don't have to cling to these things as if my life depends on it. Even my children, right? Even my family, even my, my closest relationships. But in addition to that, my home, my retirement, Whatever, mm-hmm. um, these things uh, are are frail. They will be taken. They are temporary. I mean, everything is temporary, right. other than Jesus. But mm-hmm. because I have Jesus, I can face the fact that these things are temporary, and I can actually be thankful for them, even though they're temporary, mm-hmm. because I have something that's permanent. I have the yeah. best thing, that the greatest gift, and that's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we seek God's kingdom first? Well, you know, I think, um, well, so I guess in, it'll look different in, in everyone's life, um, but I might, I might say it like this. We continually are asking ourselves in every situation the question, what can I do or say that brings good news of redemption and salvation here? 
what restores or extends shalom in this case, right? Because that's that's what we're thinking of as, as God's kingdom, right? God's mm-hmm. kingdom is, is where God is reigning, and sin and death and sorrow, sickness, suffering, these things are done away with, and darkness is banished, right? So, so seeking his kingdom first is looking around for, okay, how can I bring the good news of the kingdom to this situation? Asking that, right? So I, I don't know what we're going through life asking ourselves usually i think what we're asking ourselves is what's going to make me feel good now or you know four hours from now right i mean i think we're 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 probably good at you know going through a little pain now so i can have some pleasure in the next day or so but and that i think probably is generally what we're what we're thinking about um but instead saying in the moment what does it mean to to bring god's kingdom to bear here right now. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes the answer to that question will mean simply enjoying something that God has given you, right? I mean, it, it doesn't yeah. mean all this, this work and sacrifice all the time. God is glorified when we are enjoying the gifts he's given us, right? And, mm, and he gives amen. more than, than just what we need to do work. He gives us super abundance. And so therefore, there should be lots of enjoyment and there should be lots of partying. But we do that before God and we do that right. thanking God, right? So how do, you, how do you redeem a party, right? Well, you have the party, but you do it recognizing God and, and, right. and drinking and eating to God, right? Yes, yeah. Now, sometimes it means, you know, going against our instincts of how do I maximize my comfort and pleasure right now, right? Maybe mm-hmm. that means taking a break from work in order to do something. Maybe it means writing a check in generosity. Maybe it means asking that next question of a person as opposed to just wanting to get on with your day. Maybe it means stopping to engage someone you wouldn't, like we've talked about before. How do we become people of justice? Maybe it means beginning to have relationships with people that we would otherwise avoid, so in, it's going to look different in our lives as we go throughout our days, but then there are going to be some things that look the same for us in, in the sense that we are frequently inviting God into our day, mm-hmm. uh, into our circumstances, particularly by prayer, right? So seeking God's mm. kingdom first, it's almost always going to have to involve daily prayer, yes. and it certainly needs to involve weekly worship and prioritizing uh, God's church family, you know, and, and God's community that he's given us. So... It, it, you ask the how. I mean, that's that's the how. You know, it's we're, right. we're, we are we are seeing that God is using all things to conform us to the image of Christ. That means right now I can be asking the question: Okay, how does God's kingdom come to bear? What can I do to bring it to bear here and now? Right? There's always an opportunity to do that, and to get good at asking that question and answering that question, we need to be constantly inviting God into our day in prayer and into our week in worship. And I think when we do that, we find out. Again, how much God has given to us, and and shouldn't that make us more generous people? Absolutely. And if yeah. so, how do how do we? Is there a secret to becoming more generous? Well, I mean, you know, this is maybe the Sunday school answer, right? Is Jesus? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like so. So here's the thing, Matt. I mean, you really can. You really can give yourself a lot to Christian things and to the Bible and not be a generous person. Yep. And and it's it's because, you know, Jesus is not at the heart of that, you know? I mean, you, right. you the Pharisees were great at reading the Bible and not finding Jesus. Um so Jesus does have to be at at the heart and and focus of of everything that we're doing and 
you know, if we're doing that, if our focus ultimately is on the uh, on on Jesus and what He has done for us on the cross, then I think mm-hmm. generosity will undoubtedly follow. Yeah. Um, but but if we're not focusing on Jesus, we can do a lot of these Christian things, and and we end up being you know tired, frustrated, or self righteous. I mean, one thing you can do. Um, you know, to, to become a more generous person is to just practice it, right? I mean, like, so mm-hmm. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing, right? Right. And, and he's talking there about generosity. You know, he's talking about giving in secret. And, and you know, I've done this for a while, for a time in my life. Someone asked me for money, I gave it to them, right? I mean, like, mm-hmm. just just do it. Um, and it, and, and really it's not about the other person. It's about you. It's about your heart. And, and I'm not saying that that's a wise thing to do all the time, but, but maybe for a period of your life, if you find yourself being a person who isn't generous, maybe there's just a a basic, you know, surface level practice there. I'm going to practice being open-handed by Mm -hmm. good, you know, like I'm just going to do it. And, and, and sometimes it does make sense to be wise, to not give, you know, to people who are asking sometimes mercy limits mercy, but but sometimes we just need to practice that muscle of giving, right? Yeah. But yeah. like like you're saying, and, and like I said in, in the sermon, the way that we ultimately become generous in our hearts is by recognizing that we are a benefactor of generosity, right? That God gave his only son, right? God gave his greatest treasure, right? He God God the Father looks upon the Son and just loves him and he wants us to love him like he loves him, right? I mean, like this is the greatest gift uh, possible and and we have been given him. And so therefore we can move forward as we recognize that. Now, one of the ways that we recognize it is we practice it in prayer. We practice it particularly uh, in confession and repentance. We confess our sin. We confess that we've betrayed God, and we receive Jesus again as the gift for our trespasses, as the solution to our sin and death, right? And we, we rehearse this over and over again. This is why we practice confession and repentance every week in worship, um, so it's it, whatever you can do to focus your heart and mind on Jesus and the gift that he is, you know, that, that we didn't earn him, we didn't coax him, we didn't call him to ourselves. While we were still sinners and enemies, he died for us. And as we focus on that and dwell on that, we see him as the greatest gift possible and that, that we are, you know, beyond the winners of the lottery. You know, like mm-hmm. we yeah, are yeah. we are just incredibly favored and blessed. And so now, okay, I've been given so much. All right, I, I have plenty to give. Yeah. Boy, if we had that attitude going out throughout the world, we would be, I think, happier people too. <laughs> happier people. And guess what? The world would take Jesus very, very seriously. Amen. All right. Well, Bob, thanks so much again for your time today. Absolutely. The title of Bob's sermon is People and Property. You can find that sermon and all our sermons and this podcast on iTunes and Spotify and on our website at gracesouthbay.com. You can also find a link on our website to ask questions for this podcast. Right now, we're still streaming our main worship services on Facebook and YouTube at 9 a.m. on Sundays. But we're holding a couple of in-person communion services during the week in accordance with county guidelines. If you'd like to participate in one of these services, be on the lookout for an email from one of our pastors with dates and times to sign up. We have a max of 25 people at each. Grace's pastors, elders, and leaders are on duty, so let us know how we can care for you. 
We'll be back next week for another episode of the GSB podcast. So stay tuned and stay healthy. We look forward to our next time together. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks for listening.